Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. We are back after a winter hiatus in which I finished writing my book. Yay! Welcome to everyone, to old listeners, to new listeners. It's very good to have you here. I'm your host, Clementine Ford. I wrote the best-selling books, Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, and my third book, How We Love, will be published this November through Allen and Unwin. I do a bunch of other stuff too, most of it online, given the relentless lockdowns we've had in my home city of Melbourne, Australia. But on this podcast, I act as one thing and one thing only, your honorary big sister, straight shooting, no words minced, tough love big sis. Each week, I'm joined by a guest to help me answer your questions. And if you'd like yours to be considered, you can email it to me on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all identities are kept anonymous. I'd like to send a special shout out to my Patreon supporters, all of whom have been very patient while waiting for the podcast to return. Your support really does mean the world to me and I couldn't do the work I do without it, literally. And I'm so deeply appreciative. Someone whose work and existence I'm also deeply appreciative of is this week's guest, She's a writer, an activist, and a content creator using her platform to campaign for true change in the fashion industry and its deplorable oppression of the global south, or, as she would have it, the world's traditionally pillaged countries. Her Instagram video, Why Performative Allyship is Triggering, which called out brands and influencers for monetizing the Black Lives Matter movement, has accumulated over one million views. In her debut book, Consumed on Colonialism, Climate Change, Consumerism and the Need for Collective Change, she lays out an unimpeachable argument against supporting fast fashion and the brands who clog up the world's waterways and landfills with it. She is Aja Barber. Hello! How are you? You know when you wake up and you're just having one of those days where you're so tired you can't really see. That was how I felt this morning. So I'm drinking a big cup of coffee, but I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you. If I may, the dress, because that's why I couldn't sleep. Because when you have a post that does really well on social media, it opens you up to, and you of all people know this, it mm-hmm. opens you up to every entitled, awful messy person on the internet if they come across it they're in your inbox they're in your comments so i think that's why i couldn't sleep i was very anxious because i had a post that did very well in social media speak yesterday about the dress that aoc wore to the met gala and it demonstrates the power of fashion it demonstrates how the world treats fashion as both performative, frivolous, and silly because it's considered women's stuff. But at the same time, the amount of times I wanted to be like, sir, you were calling this performative and silly and all sorts of expletives, but you realize you're talking about a dress. 
So fashion both has <laughs> yeah. this extreme impact at the same time while the world's like, ooh, it's so serious women. <laughs> so just to give people a little backstory who are listening to this, if you don't follow fashion or even really news about fashion or if you're just not online on the day that the Met Gala shares all of the fashion, mm-hmm. if you're not kind of into any of that, then you'll have missed the fact that AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is, of course, an incredible congresswoman in New York City, was invited as a public official to the Met Gala and she wore a dress that, as you pointed out, Aja, was designed by a black designer and the dress was on loan and it was a white dress that on the back had written, Tax the Rich. Now, Aja, would you like to take over and explain people's (laughs) outrage? (laughs) So... So, you know, I just wrote a little post that said, look, I don't hate it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying it's the be all and end all of activism, because one thing that the left does very well is we look at someone do a thing and go, oh, look, they did the thing. It's settled. It's done. We love that on the left. It's just like the the hard work and grit that comes with actually like pushing a conversation along no, someone sees someone, you know, photographed doing something. It goes, oh, well, that's great. Taken care of. So, you know, I wasn't going to be like, this is, you know, completely revolutionary. But at the same time, the general public seems to always play down the impact that fashion has on our planet. And that's arguably why we're in the mess that we're in. And the reason the general public does that is because it's women stuff it's frivolous it's Mm -hmm. silly it's you know lots of queer people within the fashion industry it isn't a cis het straight man's thing always but there are plenty of men that are it's not sport so it doesn't attract the majority of the participants as cis straight men and so because of that the world completely devalues fashion, whether we're talking about something that gets people talking or even how style is created and changed, you know, how everything that we wear, we pretty much rob from artists and working class people, anything that becomes a trend, you know, think about like sandblasted denim and where that came from. It literally came from people being like, oh, wow, I really like the look of those jeans worn by that, you know, working class person that had been broken in for years, but I don't want to break them in myself. So can someone else do it for me? So there's Mm. so many like socially interesting conversations that happen around the fashion industry. And the fashion industry accounts for a percentage of the climate emergency problem, the GDP of countries, uh, and the way we spend our money without even really thinking about it. So you have all these people just railing about AOC's dress, just like so annoyed with her, but at the same time being like, this is performative, it's silly. And I'm like, you've been railing about a dress for two hours now on my Instagram, but sure. I do want to talk about your book because it is one of those books that is so brilliantly written it's like a conversation with a friend and yet it fucking scared the shit out of me too like it is a horror story and it should be people should feel horrified and terrified to read this book but what I was going to say and we'll get into that in just a second but what I was going to say was that um I think that it's so easy I often imagine it as like we all feel like we're climbing on a ladder towards some kind of higher goal uh in a a circumstance like this the higher goal is to end fast fashion and to end the profit profiting off of the labor of workers in the global south or as you call it the traditionally pillaged countries but for a lot of people so many people almost understandably because again this is how the system replicates itself and keeps itself in primacy it feels like too big and monumental a task that the next best thing, if they're climbing up, if they're climbing up a ladder and they think, well, I can throw my bucket of shit at the top 
of the ladder where the real problem is. But I'm, it's never, I'm never going to throw that far. I'm just not close enough. But what I can do is I can throw it at the person who's just slightly in front of me. And that's going to feel effective in some way. I'm going to get rid of the shit in my hands, which is making me feel bad and that it's weighing me down and it stinks yeah. and I don't like it. I can throw it at that person and then they get off the ladder and I can get closer to where the real problem is. And I feel like that with, with so many issues of social justice and particularly the way that the left eats itself, which, again, sometimes it's very valid criticism, of course. But when we're talking about fast fashion... It is such a huge task. How did you not, when you were writing this book, I mean, I know it, you've been working in this area for years, so it's not like mm-hmm. it's not like you just decided on a whim to write about fast fashion and, you know, the global oppression of brown bodies. But did writing the books, did it, was it a release for you or did it make you feel even worse about the situation, I guess is what I'm getting at. So... One thing I do because I don't actually really monetize my Instagram. I've got like one Instagram sponsor is I, I have a Patreon every day. I have to talk about these topics. So that's one way that I just sort of, it keeps me really honest on this stuff is I'm literally reading and digesting and picking the best discussions to have about this topic every day. And I just felt like what I put into the book was just stuff that's been swimming in my head for years. It was good to get it out. Like it was like, let's get it on a page um, because I just feel like it needs to be out here. And also existing on the internet for years, there are some messages which are in the book that are starting to become very, very, very mainstream. And I'm happy about that. But I have been pushing that message uphill like a boulder for like four years. And when that happens, it's usually somebody taking a tweet that someone else has said based off of something I've said. And then it circulates the internet 20 times over. And in no way is anyone like, oh, by the way, Audra Barber has been saying this for like five years. So there was a part of me that was like, put it in the book because in some way our society tends to use books and reference them and be like, okay, this is, you know, this person. But for me, it, it's like the, the conversation about, oh, it's, it's, it's really classist to critique fast fashion because of poor people. That was a conversation that I was sick of hearing as a high schooler when fast fashion became the norm in the early 2000s, I distinctly remember my peers and everyone I knew shopping fast fashion. And I remember sort of poking around a bit and asking people, you know, but but why do you buy this? Don't you think that maybe we should all be spending a bit more money on our clothing? Because as, as early as it came in, I kind of began to question the cheapness of it. How can something be this cheap if we know that it takes X amount of time to make. How could they possibly get these prices down this low? And I'm from Northern Virginia, which is a super affluent area, usually like top 10 places to live in the US, like very, it's affluent. And my um, my family is lower middle class. I would argue we're pretty firmly middle class now, edging towards like the end of that line. But growing up, we were we were lower middle class. Most of my peers had way more money than we did, way more financial privilege, way more everything, but everybody was buying fast fashion. And I remember asking one of my friends like, okay, but why do you shop at this place every weekend? You don't even need that clothing. And the thing that people would always say is, oh, how dare you like criticize me? I'm poor. And I'm like, no, you're not. Your parents bought you a house. You drive a luxury vehicle. And I began to sort of realize that like everybody was going to take that route. Nobody actually wants to be poor. Being poor is super sucky. Like it's, it's systemic. It's hard to climb out of. And there's never a point where someone who is middle class or upper class wants to like be like, oh yeah, I'm poor, except for when it comes to participating in systems they don't really want to question. So I had been hearing that for years and years and years. And then I started to go, okay, let's look at the numbers that this industry is making. Let's look at the wealth breakdown of America, which is like the biggest fast fashion consumer in the world. Well, China technically is because of the population. America is per 
per head. So, you know, let's look at the numbers. Let's see how wealthy people are getting off of this. And what I found was that at the top of all of these companies was a billionaire. And I was like, right. So I know that like the amount of wealth of, you know, working class and working poor people is mm -hmm. 3% of America's wealth. You mean to tell me that 3% is making a billionaire? And so I really started to push back on that notion because we have a lot of class confusion within our society. That's a really typical indicator of the middle class is that there's class confusion. And by the way, resource generation breaks this down really well. They're a website that you can go to. I think they're an organization and they do a really great job of explaining class in America. And uh, I knew that, you know, poor and working class wealth was 3% of America's wealth. And so this notion that this person and this person were all becoming billionaires from this horrible system because of poor people, uh, the math ain't mathin'. Nope. Well, you also make the interesting point in the book that the way that we conceive of what being poor means in a, in, you know, in the global north is contextually not poor either. You know, even if you are genu genuinely yeah. a poor person, um, yeah, it's still that colonial kind of differentiation between. Well, I'm, I'm, um, and I have to be careful because I'm also not poor. You know, and I, and I, yeah, my family, we were middle class too. So I don't want to denigrate anyone yeah. who who would say to me fairly, "Well, you don't actually understand what it's like." But the thing is, yeah. In, as a defense of fast fashion, which I'm rapidly coming to understand more, the defense of fast fashion can't be, well, I can't afford expensive clothes, so therefore we will mm. all buy fast fashion because really at the root of it is consumerism, mm. right? It's like as Arundhati Roy says, you know, when all of these billionaires talk about, well, they – or people defend CEOs by saying, well, they work really hard. They should be on good salaries because they w work really hard. And she says, no one works harder than the person who picks your rice in the field. Exactly, exactly. And if we really want to conceptualize global poverty, 50% of the planet lives on less than $5.50 a day. So like if we're really breaking down the global poverty scale, I get that like, you know, poverty, there are poor people in every country of the world, right? I totally get that. But in comparison to the person who's making the clothing, actually none of us are technically poor. We're poor in our location. We don't have the tools that we need to survive. And I want every person to have the tools they have to survive. But we're not going to get there from oppressing the 60 million garment workers mm. who are creating clothing that we are buying and don't even really need. And what's more is that... You know, and I won't say that a person who is economically disadvantaged doesn't need that pair of trousers, but the person who is economically disadvantaged isn't the person who is doing the whole video. They're not the person who shops every weekend. They're not the person who shops as a pastime. And so even this notion that if a person is poor, they're the reason this system is surviving is completely false. It's false. Mm. Mm. One of the things that I found so confronting in a book that is filled with confronting things is being presented with, I mean, it's it's one thing to kind of conceptually sort of understand how fast fashion's a problem, you know, yes, we mm -hmm. consume too much. But when you actually deliver to people the facts about where all of that fast fashion, firstly, how much is produced and where all of it ends up, I found that quite I mean, it was horrifying and I was disgusted with myself and my own complicity in the system because, as you know, at the start of the year I made a, a, a pledge. Well, it was it was sort of an unofficial pledge. I really was like, I do not want to participate in fast fashion anymore. I'm going to excuse myself from that system. And I did pretty well for a few months, but I'm a consumer. I live in a consumerist world and I'm not excusing – I'm not, you know – abrogating responsibility Dude, same that, but... same i just had to switch my consuming to books like that's <laughs> yeah. the thing consumerism is 
fed into like our our placenta as like embryos you know it's just like it is well so literally deeply... you 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 referenced the placenta that had tiny bits micro of so understanding that or rather being confronted with the actual physical reality of tons upon tons of clothes ending up in landfill every year and 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 also realizing that that's where they're intended to end up. Yeah. I mean, that's the truly evil part about and it. And obsolescence. Yeah, it's not, an, it's not an unfortunate fact of, oh, it's not an unfortunate kind of outcome of fast fashion. Well, we didn't mean for it to end up, like the planned obsolescence, as you say, is that in order to get people to keep consuming and lining the pockets of billionaires, they need people to get rid of all the fashion that they have. And I know as someone who is, constantly kind of overwhelmed by the number of clothes that I have and I'm feeling I've begin I've begun to feel very sick and anxious about it mm-hmm. that obviously if they want people to keep buying fast fashion those clothes have to go somewhere yeah. and they we put them in our bags and as you say we think we're doing the right thing by taking them down to the op shop yeah. but only what around 15% of those it's clothes 10 to 20% maybe get sold for on. most charities there's a few charities in the UK like Oxfam that are definitely trying to get those numbers up and making sure that everything that comes through their hands either gets recycled or sold which is good but that's not everyone well, no, and also we're around the same yeah. age. And so we remember growing up in, you know, being teenagers in the 90s. And vintage stores, op shops, they had some gold Oh, in my goodness. Absolute you know? gold. And now it's just, I can tell you as someone who lived in London in 2003 and was like the charity shops in London are top notch and moved back in 2017, 2018, I have seen the change in 15 years time basically i've seen things change and slide magnificently downhill i have now when i go to like some of the best charity shops and i live i'm close to like peckham in london which is pretty cool they have some great charity shops chock-a-block with polyester it's pretty much majority fast fashion like so most of most of the world's fast fashion is filtered through mm-hmm. charity shops by people who want to believe that they're doing the right thing and maybe don't want to look too closely at where yeah. those clothes end up, but then ultimately ends up in Cantamanto yeah. Market mm-hmm. in Ghana, which you write about in Consumed. Uh, can you talk a little bit about yeah, the market, so please? There are a few locations in the Global South that you know deal with our clothing you know, Rwanda and Kenya are two examples, but Cantamonto is arguably one of the largest secondhand markets in the world. And it's not even that big, but the amount of clothing that gets filtered through Cantamonto, I think goes to the tune of 15 million garments a week. It moves at the same time frame as our fast fashion does because it's forced to, except as we know with our charity shops, they can't sell all that clothing. There's not enough population in Ghana to wear all the clothing that is being dumped in that direction. So what happens is the clothing that gets unsold is now polluting that part of the world. There is a dump which was opened a few short years ago that was supposed to hold that region of the world for for a while and it, it filled up years in advance because of clothing waste. Uh, there is a neighborhood, Old Fatima. People live on top of piles of clothing, essentially. It pollutes the beach. Uh, and and it's just, it's devastating. And it's also devastating because as an American, most Americans get really mad when you, at the mere suggestion that their taxes might be paying for another country's crap like unless it's one of those things where it's like oh you know it's the, the you know like oh yeah we, we really need to get involved with that it's just like oh no we shouldn't be paying for that that's that country's problem imagine if the whole world were dumping all of their clothing on your country and then your municipal government had to pay your tax money was going to mitigate a problem which you have not created and not profited from people would be furious. And so there is this idea and this idea that 
we are doing something that's really altruistic and wonderful when we donate our clothing is absolutely wrapped up in consumerism and, and colonialism. And um, NIMBY, which is the phrase, it, it's the acronym, not in my backyard, that extends to the idea that that piece of fast fashion that you bought, that you kind of knew you weren't really going to wear for a long time, and now it suddenly looks like crap because it's been constructed cheaply and it didn't hold up more than five wears, you're still going to donate it because you might not want it, but someone over there will, you know? Even more to that, that you might not want it, but because you don't think about where it's ending up ultimately, but mm -hmm. the poor people who go to the charity shops, they'll want they it. They want it. They want yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. They can have it. So one of the things that I found... Um, really enlightening um, about reading your book was that the way in which you explore not just I mean this all kind of comes down to classism but also colonialism and racism because as you say the traditionally pillaged countries that have always been dismissed as the third world you know quote unquote mm -hmm. the third world or even perhaps even more offensively the developing world mm -hmm. um, are actually the ones as you say that the colonizing countries pillage the resources of, you know, mm -hmm. these resource-rich countries, pillage them, exploit the labor of, and then ultimately at the end of the supply chain, dump it back in their backyard as rubbish. Yeah, it's exactly that. From start to finish, the supply chain shits on marginalized people in the global south. And that's what people don't realize. And I think if that were on a banner and placed someplace highly visible in London, I think that would be a really interesting discussion point because a lot of people really don't see this system as, you know, as bigoted and gross as it actually is, but it totally is because we're both, you know, loving fast fashion and participating in it, but also really, really shrugging off its impact because the world has taught us it's frivolous and silly. Don't look deeper at that. It's just beauty's only skin deep. Don't look deeper. Don't peel back the layers. Just buy and consume and be a part of the system, but also don't question it and don't take it too seriously. But it actually has serious impact. Yeah, and it's also the way that you talk about, you know, the corporate manipulation of 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 social justice issues. So the greenwashing, the woke washing, yeah. the pretense at sustainability. You know, you mentioned the recycling bins that a lot of clothing stores have at the front of the shop. I think that H&M has one of them now. They sure um, do. And they I give you a coupon about... to buy more clothes. Yay. Um, with this pretense that like, well, we're all kind of, you know, we're all pretending to ourselves that we're particip that we've changed our habits in a way that makes this actually not as bad as it is. But also, as you also point out in the book, it's not that it and it shouldn't be the job of individuals. We all have a responsibility to step back from it, of course, but it shouldn't be the job of individuals to say, "Well, we need to solve the crisis of resource depletion and theft yeah. in the global south and the dumping of shit back in their backyards." When this is a problem created by billionaires yes. and sustained by billionaires because that is the way that they make money. And it really shocked me at the start of the book when you said that, you know, most of these people could give up 90% of their money it's and still never run out of money. Never run out of money. They could write a check tomorrow and solve some of these problems. They just refuse to do it. And it's so disgusting. It's just, it, you know, and... These sorts of visualizations really help me. So like before I, oh God, my cat is being bothered by another cat. Steve, I'm go, so go, go. I'll be right back. I want to talk about the, the, the fact that our brains don't really compute a billion. We don't like we, and, and I know that mine doesn't because math is not my strong suit, but I think we really gloss over how much money a billion is, how much of anything a billion is. And so 1 million seconds is 11 days and a billion seconds is 32 years. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, to give a really great analogy to talk about fashion, waste, wealth, how much money we're dealing with. Okay. 
if you had a billion dollar bills and you line them up edge to edge and you just did that, just stacking these billion one dollar bills, they would wrap around the earth nearly four times. So one of the conceptualized ideas I, I sort of give people when talking about fast fashion is in 2017, H&M reported $4 billion in unsold stock. And if we say wholesale, that maybe they paid a pound for everything, which what we know is it's usually far less for like super fast fashion stores, right? And I can see where you're going with this. All right. Say that's a billion garments. Say it's mm. a billion t-shirts, right? That a t-shirt's bigger than like a dollar bill. So if you were just imagining the waste that one of these companies is creating, that's enough for you to grasp the scale of ecological crisis we're looking at. But if you really, really want to get in there and get to the nitty gritty, it takes 5,000 gallons of water to grow a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. One t-shirt, one pair of jeans, 5,000 gallons of water. So that's growing the cotton, producing the denim, that sort of thing, right? We are hurtling towards climate emergency. We cannot deny it. All the news is there. It's there. It's buried so that we'll all like keep consuming, but we're hurtling in that direction. If we do not get things down to where they need to be by 2050, our world is really going to change and a lot of us aren't going to survive it. What this future that we're heading towards looks like is water shortages. To keep it really honest, and one t-shirt and a pair of jeans is 5,000 gallons of water. So imagine what 1 billion t-shirts and a pair of jeans, how much water is being used on that process. And so Mm -hmm. to really, really get people to understand the crux of this problem, this is not just uh, fast fashion's gross. This This is harming this garment worker. This is polluting the environment. This is emptying your pocketbook. Because let's be honest, the average consumer buys 68 items of clothing. We don't need that. We're just being sent messaging telling us to do it. It's harming our planet. It's hurtling us towards climate emergency. It's making that asshole over there a billionaire. It's hurting that person over there. There's got to be a better way Mm -hmm. to do things. And out of all the issues that we are currently being confronted with within our society, this is one that I truly believe we can have impacted by just considering how we buy and what we do. I remember you saying to me at the start of the year that even if you bought one less, if everyone bought one less item of fast fashion, I can't remember if you said a year or one la- one less mm-hmm. a month, all of those people around the world would make a little bit of mm-hmm. difference. And that's just not buying one extra item of fast Absolutely. fashion. When you think about the, the billions of people who purchase mindlessly, I'm one of them, you know, and, and you, you talk in, you write in the book about aspirational living, you know, the idea that you can buy a better way of being and you can buy your way into being cool. Or, I mean, this is the way that advertising has always worked. It struck me when you were talking about garment workers in particular and the idea of, you know, who is really poor who, who in the world can we really classify yeah. as poor? That the, one of the ways that fast fashion and any kind of, you know, hyper-consumption model works is by getting us to aspire to a life. You know, you could, if you buy this, then you could be this. You could look this way. You could have this life. So it works on us being aspirational. And yet for the garment worker, realistically, there's no there's aspiring nothing aspiration. Nothing. that life. You can't aspire your way out of that life. You use that great Terry Pratchett um, analogy about the boots. You know, that if you buy if you buy a really good pair of boots for $100, then you can have them for yeah. the rest of your life if you just resold yeah. them, like if they're well made. But if you're poor or working, or the working poor, and you can't afford that initial outlay of the $100 for the boots, those $10 boots do pretty exactly. well for a year or two. And so you're always that kept in that same loop. cycle. Yeah. So that perpetual buying loop. So if you're, while we're over here aspiring to these glossy lives that look good on inter- Instagram, and again, I am as guilty of it as anyone else, for the garment workers and for the people in the global south who make our shit and that we just sort of like mm-hmm. get and then toss – 
what what better life can they aspire to? And I don't mean that to sound patronizing or othering. I just mean that th- there's that face as well, that for all of the sustainability kind of pretense that fast fashion companies, you know, as you say in the book, they place these very constructed images of um, the brown women who Smiling make Smiling stock clothes image. And say, well, we're sustainable yeah, we, we're sustainable. Look, we have a corporate responsibility. Yeah. But and really, there's, it's, a, it's a very hidden kind of, it's a racism that a lot of people are not willing to confront. Oh, yeah. I always tell people, how would you feel if like a, if, if like a company that paid your invoice put slapped a picture of your face on their website? How weird would that be? You know, so like. <laughs> Uh, there's all these little things, but what you just said about the aspirational side of it, that can be found in so much of social media, you know, like you have these influencers and I, you know, don't sell clothing on my Instagram. I always say I, I won't ever sell anything that doesn't have my name on the tag, which means that I completely know the start to finish of how that product is being produced. Um, but you have these influencers that sell ultra fast fashion. And one of the, the things that I always notice is that they've always paired the dress that costs $6 with the Birkin bag or the Chanel bag or the Dior sunglasses because they are selling you an aspirational lifestyle. If you buy that $6 dress, you're not going to magically be able to afford a Birkin bag or any of the products that they're reshowing on their their grid their luxury products okay they're using that to help you feel like this is a lifestyle choice and i also saw this and this has been like my favorite like mess but um there's a documentary lula rich about this legging company in the u.s and it's a multi-level marketing group and basically they exploited not just you know the people that worked for the company but pretty sure garment workers as well. Like I have a sneaky suspicion there was exploitation going on there. Anyways, there's this documentary about this multi-level marketing company. And one of the things I notice is all of the people that reach the top of the pyramid, so to speak, they started pressuring all those people, you know, you need to buy the luxury handbags. You need to have the luxury vehicles. And the reason why was you're selling people a lifestyle and saying, hey, if you sell these leggings, you too can drive a luxury vehicle. You too can have a Louis Vuitton. And even in the documentary, the the founder of the company, who is pretty weird character, she's wearing, you know, her, her clothing, which is incredibly cheap. Like, it's amazing. You can put on so much pattern. Everybody just always looks the same in their clothing. And then she's wearing Valentino rock studs, you know, so... There's this thing now with very cheap fashion where people almost try and disguise the fact that it's so cheap by being like, look at all my aspirational luxury products. Look at this lifestyle I'm Mm. selling you, but you're not going to get that from a $6 dress. Mm. Well, and also, yeah, I've got a Birkin bag, but like I'm down to earth, you know, I'm not snobby i'll wear anything oh, yeah. look at look at this i've i'm accessible yes. they do that with celebrities like i really do not respect celebrities who can buy ethical clothing and and choose not to and the reason they do it is because we've done this whole oh this person's salt of the earth because they shop at the place that exploits garment workers how weird is that but that's what our society does. She's just like you. No, she's not just like you. She's doing that to make you think, I'm just like you. I'm a normal person. It's just like, I don't even respect that, you know? Well, that is a great segue to talking about um, Molly May. Who, yeah. Molly May is, for anyone who's not familiar, Molly May is a British influencers daughter of someone else who's famous i'm only familiar with her because i watched part of the love island is she the daughter of someone famous i don't i don't really i'm not oh no 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 sorry i'm thinking about another love island contestant (laughs) molly may was on love island though and so love island has this thing where uh all of the women on love island are provided with a very like cheap rotating fast fashion wardrobe 
a rotating order and it's delivered to them like every day that they can choose from these pieces with the direct purpose of people who are watching Love Island, which is millions, maybe billions of people, um, being able to see one of the women wearing something cheap and disposable, very distinctly fast fashion and getting online immediately and buying it and purchasing it and it may be being delivered to their house within two or three days. Yeah. Now Molly May has just been, or overnight, I'm in Australia, so everything takes a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> um, Molly May has, who's what, like 21, 22 years old. I think she's 22. 22. She's just been made the head designer, CEO, head buyer. Uh, creative director of Pretty Little Thing. Creative director of Pretty Little Thing which is the company I believe that provides or that works as part of the umbrella group that provides all of these clothes. Yes. Yeah. So that, that, that's the thing. Like there, there is, it's a pipeline to big fashion influencer show. I would argue that if somebody went on that show, they could have no interest in love whatsoever, but have an extreme interest in growing their social media and that could be achieved. You had a great post the other day where you were talking about the disingenuousness of the fashion industry in general, um, but particularly the people who helm it and the influencers who flog it. Uh, And Molly May had been asked about fast fashion and its impact on the environment. And she gave some answer like, you know, obviously this is, well, you know, you did the post. I I wear my clothes twice. I don't understand how it became normalized. And I was like, ha, ha, you don't understand how it became normalized. You were somebody who probably arguably makes, I'm guessing, uh, let's say, 50,000 pounds of posts to post an ad on your Instagram. Let's say, let's say, and and you know, that might even be a low estimate. That might be a super low estimate because she is a, she is a highly sought person in this ultra fast fashion world. And so I think that's a low estimate. I think I'm really guessing too low there. So you were someone who arguably probably can make like 50 to 250,000 pounds for one Instagram ad and no one is paying you to normalize rewearing their clothing because you sell clothing. Your job is to not rewear the the clothing. Your fame comes from a show which provides you with a rotating wardrobe, which people can buy immediately within the show from one of the companies with a not very great track record of treating their garment workers. You are the problem. How dare you say you don't understand how this became normalized? Like, that's what I mean about people playing the fool. Like, she might be 22, but she is nobody's fool. And that was a very strategic thing that she just did there. If it weren't normalized, honey, you'd be out of a job. That's really it. Well, and all, but also, okay, it's normalized. How did it become normalized? Even if you could take in good faith that she was telling the truth about that, what do you plan on doing about it, Molly May? You've just signed on as creative director to essentially a, a company that is one of is part of one of the biggest polluting industries on the planet. And it's the ultra. What are you planning on doing about it? Because I because I'm pretty sure it's not normalizing wearing your clothes multiple times. What people need to understand is that like Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, Shein, they are ultra fast fashion, okay? You have your normal fast fashion. You've got your your ASOS, your uh, H&M, your Zara, and then there is an extra level of how quick these companies move. So these companies, even though I definitely hate the billionaires that are part of the previous companies as they definitely brought this problem into fruition. These ultra fast fashion companies move even faster than they do. So like you are a part of the second iteration of a problem that has sped up with you and you're literally claiming ignorance. Like, come on, don't be a clown. Do you think that um, Shein and, or Shein, Shein, or Boohoo or Pretty Little Thing, how quickly before they have Kim Kardashian's entire T-shirt outfit from the Met Gala available to buy for Oh, they can get something on their website, I think, in like 24 hours or less. Like I actually think they they can literally take a, you know, if if a Kardashian-Jenner wears an item, they can get that copied and on their website within a day. 
That also really stunned me and made me feel incredibly mm. ill at the impact on the human, the human cost of that, that what is going on at the start of the supply chain that makes it possible for an outfit to be copied, replicated millions of times and then sent out within two or three days. Like what is happening to the garment workers Mm -hmm. and their – I mean, we know that garment workers obviously are incredibly Mm -hmm. exploited. There is no factory on earth that really is defensible when Mm -hmm. it comes to garment workers, particularly not with fast fashion. But that was truly – terrifying to think of that yeah um so i would argue that maybe it's not millions of those pieces that are being created but definitely Mm -hmm. wouldn't be a stretch to say tens thousands maybe hundreds of thousands depending on the maker and yeah i think it puts incredible strain on whoever is doing that. You've got a designer who's got to work really quickly. And then you've got these garment workers that have to fly into action trying to fill these orders. And one thing we also know is that when it comes to the system of outsourcing labor, which is what the vast majority of the fashion industry runs on, all the power lies within the brand, all the power. So say the brand is like, hey, we want to copy that weird thing that Kim Kardashian wore at the Met Gala. and We want to get it done quickly. We're going to order 10,000 of these pieces. You know, they put the order into work and the factory goes for it. Say that they think that it's a great idea. And then the the next day they wake up and go, oh, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Then they start to read the the news and everybody's cracking on it. It's become like such a joke that like they're like, oh, no one's going to buy this now. They can literally walk away and leave the garment workers and the factories holding the bag on that Mm. piece they chose to produce which is exactly what happened when lockdown happened for the global North, hence the pay up campaign. All of these stores order their summer season stuff months in advance. You know, not everyone is as last minute as the ultra fast fashion. A lot of people, you know, work on a time frame where they're a few months in advance, but, but either way, all of this stuff had been ordered for the summer season that never came. And so Instead of doing the right thing, because there is zero legality in the system, all of these brand owners just said, you know what? Fuck you guys. We're going to walk away. Sorry. And these are companies owned by billionaires where once again, someone could open a checkbook and say, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do with this clothing, but we cannot not pay for this clothing. There are millions of garment workers who will be destitute, who will be out of a job. There will be factories that will shutter. There's, this is a domino impact. If we choose to not pay for this millions of dollars of clothing we've ordered, there will be an impact. There will be starvation. There will be mm. forced sex work. There will be all sorts of things that will happen. And you know what? We can do it. So mm. fuck them. How do we begin, aside from buying your book and reading it and being as horrified as I was, but but motivated for interaction, how do we resist the urge to not become too overwhelmed that we want to ignore the problem? I ask that because I think I ask that because I think that we have a terrible tendency as you know people who who want to. I'm talking generally speaking about people who care about social justice, not ding dongs who don't give a fuck about anyone else but themselves. That we have that. Um, the problem with feeling too overwhelmed by things and things seeming to be too insurmountable a problem that at the start of the year, one of the things that I I was trying to do when I said that I was going to stop buying fast fashion and I was trying to eat more vegan food and I was trying to make better choices environmentally was that I said to myself, I'm not going to, I have a tendency to be all or nothing. And if I fail to be very self you know, to, to be filled with self-reproach. And I said, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm just going to challenge myself to try harder. So is it just as simple or can it be, or can one part of it be as simple as that? Just trying harder. It took me multiple tries to get to the point where I was like, 
I don't want that stuff anymore. So please do not beat yourself up if you can't go cold turkey. It sounds like you really piled a lot on yourself. So like, well done. But like, I'm not surprised that you're just like at one point, ah, fuck it, I can't do this. I always tell people, challenge yourself in a small scale. Like, you don't have to go all in and be like, I'm never buying fast fashion again. Because honestly, we're all going to have different challenges that we face. For a long time, the only place I could find underwear that really worked was, you know, certain fast fashion stores. And with underwear, I, I feel like the vast majority of us tend to wear it so much that it doesn't become fast fashion in its usage. Mm. But still... I didn't make myself give up, you know, the things that I truly felt like I needed, right? But one of the things that really, really helped me with all of this was moving to the UK and not everyone's going to move. But I always joke that like moving is goddess's punishment for like gross materialism, because if you have to pack it up, Mm -hmm. there's always a point where you think to yourself, I'd love to just throw it all away, (laughs) you know, like always. And so... I had been sort of really thinking about this process for a long time. And it took sort of having to move another country and having to really thoughtfully dispose of my stuff. Because once you're aware of this stuff, I'm not going to be the person that's just going to like bag up everything and just leave it on charity and be like, oh, perfect, done. That can't be me. So it literally took me over a year because i'm still working on this when i go home to my parents house like there is still crap in my parents basement that i don't want to leave them having to deal with it took me over a solid year to basically pare down in a thoughtful way selling gifting to friends you know really finding charities that are like hey we can use this and me being like okay it was such a job within a job that I don't think I'll ever own that amount of stuff again in my life. I really don't because I don't want to move it. And to be quite morbid, we can't take it with us. One day, all of your stuff is going to become someone else's problem. And so having that experience really got me in, in, in the way of thinking. It got me on the ball. And then I moved here and I just sort of told myself, like, right, one, you don't have a lot of money to play with because I was on a, a, a visa, which meant that I couldn't work at first. Um, so that that helped, obviously. And then I never punished myself if I really, really, really wanted something. But I really tried my best. I always tell people, don't be like, oh, I'm going to go for a year without buying new clothing. Because I really think those sort of pledges, you're selling, setting yourself up for failure. Think about two weeks, Right. Think about a month. What happens a lot with me is I get messages from people and they say, yeah, you know what? When I um, first started following you, I thought, that's not me. I'm never going to quit fast fashion. And then at one point in time, you kind of challenged us all to like delete some of the apps on our phone that were related to fast fashion. So I did that. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go two weeks without going into a fast fashion store. And for a lot of people, if you start out really small, challenging yourself, what happens is that that two weeks rolls into a month, that month rolls into two months. And so I think if we set that target at a place that feels almost unachievable, I feel like we're actually setting ourselves up for failure. But if you say, look, I'm only going to do this for two weeks. I'll see how I feel. What you'll find is that at the end of that two weeks, you're like, you know, at first it felt a bit odd, but now I actually don't really mind it. And another thing about fast fashion, which people have to realize is that when you're in the cycle of perpetually buying it, you don't notice how bad some of it is. You really don't like you. This is what you buy. This is what you do. Yeah, sure. I think it smells a bit funny, but never mind that. Now, after years of not buying anything from the stores I used to go into, I notice these things when I go in. My wardrobe is completely different. I tend to, you know, support brands that I know are going to last me for years and years. And when I go into... And you always dress so beautifully as well. That's really lovely. That's really nice of you to say. I really appreciate that. When I go into an H&M, it smells like crap. smells like cheap plastic. Like, and I notice it even... I ordered something from a department store that has a sustainable brand and I wouldn't say they're a sustainable department store. When the sustainable brand arrived, it arrived covered in 
10 layers of plastic. Mm. And I remember being like, I don't miss this, <laughs> you know, like, oh, that's how much plastic I was dealing with for like the 10 years that I was really in deep with these brands. Oh no, you know? So if you take a little bit of time away from this system and then you decide to go back, the things that we talk about will be glaringly obvious to you. It's just, we can't see it when we're in it. Mm. It's like being in a storm. Someone asked me, uh, sent in an email knowing that you were going to be on the podcast asking, Mm -hmm. are accessories and jewelry as bad in terms of them ending up in landfill? I mean, is it, is it the same extent of a problem with those things as it is with fast fashion? Is it all part of the same beast? I bet it, I, I think it's all a part of the same beast. So I don't have any hard numbers there, but you know who I can ask about that? I'll ask the Or Foundation because that's a very good question. But I will say all items of, cons- all, all consumer goods depend on the user, mm-hmm. right? So it really depends on like how you're using it, how you're going through it. How much of that stuff are you buying? How much of it are you giving away? How are you participating with this accessory? But yes, there are certain accessories that I will see and think, well, that's an ecological disaster waiting to happen. God, fedoras. Oh my God. (laughs) So yes, there are certain things where they become very trendy for a hot second and you literally think, right, this is going to end up piles and piles of this in the landfill but if you have a necklace that you like and i'm like this with my accessories i get a few statement pieces and i wear them for 10 15 years basically that's how i work i don't really see the problem there it's just we know that you know there's stores that are devoted to selling us cheap jewelry so that you can have new accessories every week and maybe that's that's the problem you know so I would say all of these issues are, you know, user oriented. Mm. It's all about how you're participating in that system. But yeah, with certain trends, we just look at them and go, okay, here we go. Another way we're polluting this planet. I am going to, I was, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, I was feeling that pressure once again to like be all or nothing, but it's been really reassuring hearing you say, look, just take it step-by-step, you know, challenge yourself to two weeks. So I have been feeling incredibly overwhelmed lately, particularly during lockdown. I mean, people order things online because it's, yeah, but also people order things online because it's just, it feels nice. We've been trained to think that getting things is nice. Oh, look at this. I've got this dress. It's a treat, blah, 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 blah. So I'm going to challenge myself to, I'm going to challenge myself to a month. I think I can do a month. Yeah. I'm telling Give you right now, m- I'm putting it putting it here for accountability. You know what? No fast fashion at all. Just tr- just give it a give it a go and see what happens. But also look at the social media you are consuming because so mm. much of this stuff is real nefarious. It's like, oh, Clem looked at this top on our website, better drop some cookies so it follows her all over the oh, internet. No. You, buy me, Clem, buy top? me. You need to look at me. You look so good. But I, I will say as well, I mean, like, I think that, and I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up your butt, even though I, I would do that if you asked me to. Um, I'd do anything for you, Aja. Um, I feel like I, I think I'm very lucky. I think I, I think we're friends. I think I'm very lucky. To I think we friend. are friends. We def- I think I actually made that pronouncement. Like I was like, I'm so happy we're friends. And then you say it like, did I say that too soon? Oh no, this is no, awkward. No, no, and you were like, we're totally friends. And I was like, <laughs> because we've, we've been talking online for a long time, actually yeah. through a few years now. Yeah. Um, obviously we've never met in person, but that you're one of those people who feels to me like when we do meet in person, it won't seem weird. Like we're meeting. Yeah. It'll yeah, be it won't like, seem weird at all. Oh my goodness. I'm going to see my friend today. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like you, your account for anyone who is kind of listening to this, who maybe has not followed you before, but is intrigued at the possibility of, of what this change could look like for them. I think that your account is a perfect place for them to start because that, that for me, beyond our friendship, that for me was one of the things that made me, that really challenged me in very, 
in that perfect kind of way where it's not it didn't make me feel like if unless I did it that I would be failing in some way but also I'd be a terrible person but you're also pretty uncompromising and I really respect that in someone because I think I'm pretty uncompromising too and I like that you do make it seem really possible but you don't just make it seem possible you make it clear that it's essential that this change is essential we must do it because as you say we're hurtling towards you know climate emergency and climate crisis and we we just cannot the world there was this part in your book that you talked about like when the human race eventually dies out if an alien species arrived and they just saw these mounds like mountains of rotting clothes and rotting garbage what they would imagine like what what kind of race they would imagine of of animal or beast or whatever had allowed this planet to suffer like this and i feel like that that is a very sobering thought to think of not just not just the impact of the fast fashion itself but what are we leaving behind because those clothes are not going to break down yeah exactly we laugh at dung beetles but look at us look at us literally at least the dung beetle has something that's useful and biodegrades we're like we dug this this stuff out of the ground and then we're going to turn it into plastic and wear it once it's just like i I joke about feeling mortified by the the judgment of like the future alien race that comes to see our sad planet but i'm not actually joking i'm embarrassed by it and and I think it's okay to feel like, oh, wow, it's really embarrassing. I I felt embarrassed when one time I added up my receipts when I was living in my parents' basement and found that I spent a tenth of my yearly salary at one store. Oh, my goodness. I was so mortified that it's okay to look at it and be like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, And ultimately, at the end of the day, I feel so much better now. And that's really it. I want every person to really look at this system and go, I'm not going to do that. And, and to find, you know, yes, consumerism is a hard one to break. Like I, I talk about how like I buy more beauty products. Now I take care of my skin and I do all sorts of things. I buy way more books. These are all things that I try and use up. If I have a book that I read and a friend wants to read it, I pass it on to a, a friend it's a hard one to break consumerism. And I'm not saying, oh, don't participate at all when we live in a capitalist structure. I'm just saying maybe you don't want to fill your closet with polyester dresses that are never going to decompose. Aja, that is all the time that we have. Um, I would love to invite you. I know you're going to be your book is published in Australia on the 28th of September. Everyone pre-order it now. Um, it is fine to buy books. <laughs> but also if you if you can't buy books, then borrow from the library because I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in Australia, authors still get public lending rights. So they still make money if you borrow books from the library. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Request it too. And I don't think this is the same in the US where I'm – from or the UK, I'm not really sure, but you can request it, you know, if more people read it, that's great. Absolutely. And and ask your local bookstore to stock it. Um, I think you're amazing. And I'm I think very, you're cool too. Oh, I'm very glad that you're in the world and that you're changing the world. And I would love for you when you have time after your book tour, I'd love for you to come back on so we could have part two of this conversation or, or even just talk about something completely different. Yes. I love talking to you. I love talking to you too. And I feel like we just like, there were so many topics that we could have talked about at length that it was hard to thank you for moving the conversation along because I get with these topics, I could be like, and then over here you have this and over here. So there is definitely room for part two here. Let's do it. Let's do it. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. And very occasionally, although more often than not it seems now, just lengthy 
fascinating conversations with fascinating humans. I'd like to send a big thank you to Acast, who are the best podcast hosts you could wish for. And if you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is all the w's.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. You can also find Aja Barber's Patreon there, which is the same address, but forward slash Aja Barber. You might also consider rating and reviewing the podcast because it's really nice to have feedback and also it helps to tell other listeners about it. Don't forget you can submit questions to the Big Sister Hotline at bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're Big Sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been the incredible Aja Barber, a true visionary and change maker whose book, Consumed, on colonialism, climate change, consumerism and the need for collective change, will be published in Australia on September 28th. I cannot urge you more strongly to buy it, read it, put its teachings into practice and talk about it with everyone else you know. Aja, anything else to say? Ultimately, listener, I want better for you. And honestly, the system isn't good for any of us. That's really the root of it. I don't want to ruin your fun. I want you to really start to look at this and be like, is this something I want to be participating in and why? But ultimately, I just want better for you. I want better for all of us. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.